Thanks, bro. Cool. Um, so, guys, what we're going to do, um, grab out your Bibles. Um, Jasmine's going to come up and she's going to read for us um, our Bible reading, which is up there on the screen. Um, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being, and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. Who is, forever pra- who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Thanks, Jasmine. How about we pray again, hey, before we get started? Our Father in heaven, thank you for giving us your word through which we are guided to salvation, guided to you. I pray now today that you will speak to us through it and that you will change our hearts so that they can be more faithful to you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Now, you would have noticed from the Bible reading we just had, there are some particularly touchy issues in there, particularly because of our current societal context. So how we're going to do this, I'm going to preach the passage, and then at the end there'll be a time for Q&A where we can actually ask our more burning questions and those sorts of things, okay? So we will get an opportunity to talk about those things. Um, For those of you who who don't really know my recent history, I just graduated from a theological college called Moore College. Uh, And one of the things that my year group decided to do at the end of every semester was a dress-up day. Now, that's not something that you do when you're kind of late 20s, early 30s, and you're at a serious theological institution, yet we decided to buck the trend and act like children. Uh, And the the dress-up day that we had at the very, very end of our four years of adult theological education, the theme was your plan B. What would you do if ministry didn't work out for you? Now, a whole bunch of people dress up as a whole bunch of different things, but what I was surprised about was the fact that so many people decided that they would be salesmen. Now, some people, you know, that they loved Apple, so they came with a little Apple symbol on them, and they were the Apple tech people, or whatever they're called, the tech experts. No, that's Dick Smith. I don't even know what they're called, right? But wizards. Um, Geniuses. Pardon? Geniuses. Geniuses. Okay, yeah, that'd be right. Um, 
But the thing that I just couldn't get my head around is, of all the jobs that I could do, salesman is not one of them. And the reason for that is that I cannot lie, and so I am useless at trying to tell somebody they should buy something when I think it's rubbish and they don't need it. Um, you can ask my wife about this. I'm not very good at hiding my true opinions on things. Hey, Matt, do you like this jumper? Uh, yeah, it looks sweet, honey. No. Right. Do you like these pants? No. Um, and so there's a whole bunch of things that I struggle with in terms of, I suppose, being honest about something if I can't see that there's a need. Now, let's think gym equipment, okay? How many of you have heard of the Ab Swing, or the Ab Crush, or the Abdur, or the Fat Blast Cruncher 2000, right? How many of those things do we have? And yet, there's a special place in every tip in Australia for those things, a giant pile of them. And the reason is, they keep selling because there is a need for them. Because at some point during the day, there's a dude sitting on a lounge with his packet of chips and a bit of a belly, and the ad comes on TV and he goes... I need that. Right? If you're convinced of a need, then you'll want the thing that's being sold. Now last week, we started the book of Romans, chapter 1, and we saw Paul's heart for the gospel. In verse 15, we saw that he was eager to preach the gospel, despite the shame it might bring, because it was the power of God for the salvation of those who believe. And then in verses 16 and 17, which is what we ended on last week, we saw the theme statement for Romans. And it summarizes the whole letter. And so if you're the sort of person who highlights your Bible, then this is the thing that you put a box around three stars and an exclamation point. Look at what Paul says here in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek and this is the part that we didn't get to last week, for in it, that is to say the gospel, but in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And what Paul is saying in these verses is that the gospel saves because the gospel reveals to us a righteousness that we can then take upon ourselves so that when we are judged by God, we will not be found wanting. And that righteousness, he says, is God's own righteousness. And we need it because we don't have any righteousness of our own. And that is why Paul is not ashamed to preach the gospel. Because it reveals to us something that we all need. Something that if we knew of the need, we would want. The problem, of course, is then, as now, people don't think that they need it. They have a plan already to earn their credit before God to gain entry into paradise. See, the Gentiles, they sacrifice to idols and worship them so that they could curry favour with the gods. The Jews, well, they religiously followed the Mosaic law. Every people group had some sort of merit system, religious merit system, that gave them confidence on Judgment Day. And so when Paul turns up and he says, I have the gospel that can save you, everyone just kind of gives him a bit of a blank stare and goes... Save, you? Save us from what? We don't need saving. And so before Paul can even start to explain the gospel and the righteousness that it reveals, he actually needs to take a backward step and fill us in, fill in what I would call the context of the gospel, without which the gospel won't make sense. He needs to tell us of our need. And so Paul, he basically spends a bucket load of time in his scroll 
to telling us about the context of this gospel. He starts from chapter 1, verse 18, which is where we're starting today, and he goes all the way through to chapter 3, verse 20. And he fills in that context, and he tells us what we are being saved from. What does he say? Well, he says two things. He says, first of all, that God is angry with you. And then he says, second of all, God will judge you. And so over the next two weeks, we're going to look at those two things. This week, God is angry with you. And then next week, he will judge you. And what you'll see is that when we see those things and we combine them together, the only conclusion that you can reach is that you are screwed. Except for the saving power of the gospel. And so today what we're going to do is going to look at God being angry with you. And we're going to look at it under three headings. Technically two and then a postscript. You've got them on your sheets there. Number one, the reason for God's wrath. Number two, the revelation of God's wrath. And then a sorry excuse for a point. The refuge from God's wrath. So let's have a look at that first point. Hey? Number one, the reason for God's wrath. First of all, Paul, at the beginning of our passage, he tells us the reason for God's wrath. Have a look there at verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And here's the key phrase. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so don't miss this. God is pouring out his wrath from heaven down upon humanity's ungodliness. But there is more going on here than God just punishing us for our immoral deeds. The truth of God has been suppressed. Now, when you're in the army and you're in a firefight and you've got enemies shooting at you from all different angles and you need to move, you lay down something called suppression fire. Some of you might know this from like Tom Clancy's Rainbow Six games or whatever it is that you guys play these days. And essentially what suppression fire is, is, is it's a spread of bullets that kind of just goes across the enemy position and it pins them down so they can't move. They're suppressed. And while they're suppressed, you're free to move around and do what it is that you want to do. And what Paul is saying here is that humanity, by their unrighteousness, is suppressing something. They're not just shooting things up. They're actually shooting with a purpose, and that purpose is to suppress the truth. And that's what makes unrighteous behavior actually so profoundly evil. Because unrighteousness is not just breaking God's moral code. It's suppressing God's truth. And so God is angry at us for our unrighteousness, not just because of what it is, but for what it does. It holds the truth down. So I've got a question for you. Uh, having a look at the passage we've got in front of us, um, I want you to discuss with the person next to you, just for a couple of seconds, what do you think that truth is that our unrighteousness suppresses? With the person next to you, I'll give you a couple of seconds. discussion and, and suggestions for this particular question. Uh, Paul tells us what is being suppressed in verse 19. 
He says it's the knowledge of God. Uh, Listen to what he says, verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. The truth that Paul is talking about here are those things about God that we can know by looking at creation. In the verse there, the things that have been made. And according to verse 20, we actually see two of them. We have God's eternal power, and we have God's divine nature. And the general point that Paul is making here is that if you inhabit this world, then you know these things. They are clearly perceived. You don't need a higher than normal intelligence. You don't need complex rational argument. You don't need a uni degree at ACU. The majesty of God is instinctively recognized. It is woven into the fabric of creation. I just want you to appreciate just how bold a statement Paul is making here, because he's basically saying to you, if you are a human being on this earth, (coughs) i.e. everyone, then you know there's a God. Now take that outside on campus and find an atheist and say that to them, right? (laughs) Those of you who have been in that sort of apologetic conversation and use that argument that the sheer wonder and complexity of the world surely points to the existence of a God will have found out that that doesn't work. Not most of the time. So my question is, is Paul wrong here? He's making a pretty bold statement. You know. Not there's likely evidence that you could rationally arrive at that conclusion if you use your mind. He says you know. Why does he say that? I think he's saying something very, very profound and very uncomfortable. He is saying that the reason you don't think there's a God is because your sin is suppressing that knowledge and it prevents you from seeing what God has made obvious. Essentially what he says is the problem isn't with God. The problem is with you. God has told you he is there. He has shown it to you. And what you have actively chosen to do is stick your fingers in your ears and drown out his voice. And you actually see this in verse 21. What does he say? For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him. But, and here's the result, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Essentially what he says is, your sin not only ignores the knowledge of God, it prevents you from seeing the knowledge of God. And this, by the way, is the reason why arguments from nature, or what we might call natural revelation or natural theology, they will never be sufficient to convince somebody that there's a God. It's because our sin is like a giant stigmatism that stops us from seeing. Your thinking here, verse 21, has been made futile. Your hearts, the centre of your thoughts, your feelings, your decisions, desires, they're darkened. You become self-deceived, unable to see the truth because you've suppressed the truth. And that means that the fault lies not with God but with you. And that means, verse 20 at the end there, you are without excuse. And so God is rightly angry with you, with us, because we have failed to treat him as God. And that leads us to our second sub-point under this heading, the truth exchanged. Now, the actual dynamic of what's going on here when the truth is suppressed 
um, is elaborated by Paul in the next couple of verses. He characterizes it as an exchange. In verse 23, we exchange the glory of God. And then in verse 25, speaking about the same thing, we exchange the truth of God. What does he say? Well, let's have a look at verse 22. He says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. There's the darkening again. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up, and we'll get to that in a little bit later. Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth of God about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So how is the truth of God suppressed? Well, it says here, they exchanged God for something else. They chose some section of the created order, and they fashioned an image about it, and they worshipped and served it rather than God. And the Bible calls this idolatry. Now, what should be obvious from this particular passage is that idolatry is a really bad trade. Now, back in 2006, when you guys were like five and couldn't walk or anything like that, there was a guy, what was his name? His name was Kyle McDonald. And he decided one day that he wanted to live in a house. So, sitting at his desk, having realised that, he looked down and saw a red paperclip, something very, very tiny. And he went, you know what? I'm going to start trading. And so he starts trading things. And the paperclip becomes a pen. And the pen became a handmade doorknob. And the handmade doorknob became a camp stove. And on and on and on it went until a year later, 14 trades later, he traded what he had gotten at that point, which was a paid role in a movie, for a house in Canada. 14 trades. And he was there from a red paperclip. Now, when this story broke out, people were like and They were lauding this as like the height of human achievement. You know, you can achieve anything so long as you put your mind to it and have a little bit of ingenuity and hard work. But I want to say that this story is actually a testament to the enduring stupidity of humankind. Now, let me tell you why. Because people forget that every successful trade that Carl McDonald made meant that somebody else was making a really, really bad trade. In fact, it took 14 people to make 14 really, really bad trades to help this one person come out better than where he started. And what Paul wants to say is that we are those people. We took a house and we traded it for a paperclip. Verse 23 says that we took the glory of the immortal God, the one who made the world, the one whose divine majesty is displayed all throughout the world. And instead of beholding him and honouring him, and thanking him as God, what we did is we turned our eyes downward and we looked on the ground. We saw a rock and we picked up the rock. And then we looked at something else and chose an animal or a human being and we carved the rock into that thing. And then we put it on a pedestal and we bowed down in homage and worshipped it. I mean, it says there that we bowed down to reptiles or creeping things, depending on what your translation says. You don't bow down to creeping things. You step on creeping things. And yet that is what this passage says that we did. Now you may be sitting here at this point and thinking, okay, cool, cool, yeah, yeah, but that's not me. Um, I live in modern society now and idol worship isn't a thing. That's for the primitives. That's for the people who are uneducated, the people who aren't at university. Now I want to say to you two things. Uh, the first is that the worship of idols 
is actually far more widespread than you may first think. Go to Africa, go to Asia, where things like animism, ancestor worship, Buddhism are like rife. You will see idols everywhere. So that's the first thing. Paul's words are not as irrelevant as you may first think. But the second, and more importantly, I think for us who live in the West, even if there are no overt presence of idols in our society, I want to say that we are perhaps some of the most guilty of idol worship and idolatry and exchanging the glory of the creator for the creation of all the people in all the world. And what I'm talking about here is materialism. We worship the material world, don't we? You name it, we glorify it. Food, take an Insta about that food. Alcohol, go for the binge on the weekend. Sex, whether it's pornography, whether it's magazines, whether it's television, whether it's whoever it is you date. Um, money, possessions, technology. I mean, how many of you guys have upgraded this in the last six months? Right? We are a materialistic society. And we elevate the material world above God. And we do it in our choices, in our actions, in what we approve, what we desire. And we actually do this. We exchange the truth about God for a lie. And because of that, God is rightly angry with us. So what do you think God is going to do if that's the case? Well, he's going to tell us, isn't he? He has a reason to be angry, and so what he'll do is he'll reveal that anger. That leads us to point two, the revelation of God's wrath. Now, pro tip for those of you who are not there yet, which I think is all of you, um, when you get married, you fight. Uh, Two sinners in close proximity, sparks will fly. Now, when I'm angry, do you know how I reveal my anger? Things get noisier. I stomp instead of walk. And I slam things instead of close things. And I angry breathe instead of breathe. You, you, you know angry breathe, right? Now, I'm not justified in that behavior. But it won't take long for my wife Beth to know that I am ticked off. How does God reveal his anger? Well, Paul tells us three times how he reveals his anger. In verse 24, we see that God gave them up to impurity. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And then verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And so essentially what God does is he lets go of the leash. We were pulling at it. We wanted to get out of there. We were running towards the road. And God instantly just goes, all right, have it your way. And he delivers us over to our sinful desires. Now, question for you, again with the person next to you. Does this mean that God is causing us to sin? He's given us up to sin. He's let go of the leash. He's letting us run free onto the highway. Is God causing us to sin? With the person next to you for a couple seconds. Yeah. 
Alrighty, that should be enough time. Sam, does somebody want to venture an answer to this particular question? Anybody? Anybody at all? We got one. I have a question. Oh, we'll get to questions oh, later, sorry. but for the moment, I'm just... I don't understand the meaning of the, what, uh, when God gives us. Yeah, and we'll get to that. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you said that you came up with something, Pat? Yeah, we said no. You said no. Yeah, Did you have a reason? Or you just went for gut instinct and just went, no, nah, God can't cause people to sin? Uh, gut instinct. Yeah, okay, cool. Well, the gut instinct is correct, but I'd be curious to see where you'd show that from the passage, and I think it's actually quite straightforward. Um, if you head over to verse 24, you'll see that God is not causing us to sin because he gives us up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. So what that means is the inclination to sin is actually already there within us. We're already pulling at that leash. All God is doing is stopping restraining us from the thing that we want to do. And in fact, we actually see the opposite side of this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 19, where Paul says that we give ourselves up to our passions and desires. And so we are not victims here. But the thing that I want us to understand in all of this is that God, therefore, is not passive in his judgment. He's not like some sort of resigned parent that lets his kid keep eating the cookies to teach him that if he keeps eating, he'll get sick. He's actually active in the giving up process. And so if you wanted to change that metaphor, it's actually like he's shoving the cookies in. Um, we want them, we're eating them, but he's shoving them. And so this is actually really important to understand because in uh, the last couple of years, there has been this movement in a lot of apologetic arguments, uh, and, it, and it's been a shift in how we portray the judgment of God. And so what we don't say is that God actively condemns us to hell. We say, well, we chose to go to hell by our choices. God is just giving us what we desire. Now, that's true insofar as it goes, but the truth is much more than that. God is not just a resigned parent who gives us what we want. Otherwise, what we do is we're just reducing God's argument down to a told you so while we suffer the consequences of sin. But God here is not just handing us over to the consequences of our sin. He's handing us over to be dominated by our sin. And one commentator, he describes it like this. God doesn't just cease to hold the boat as it's dragged away by the current of the river. When he lets go, he gives it a push downstream as well. God is actively uh, active in his judgment in the world. And so you can't just reduce his judgment down to moral cause and effect and consequences. He reveals his anger to us by giving us over to our sin. And the way that he does that, well, the passage tells us that there are two ways. Uh, in verse 24 to 27, he gives us up to impurity. And then in verses 28 to 32, he gives us up to debased minds. And I want you to watch this carefully because we're going to dive in and discuss these things in some detail. But I want you to remember that big picture, what Paul is doing here is that he is first and foremost giving us evidence that we are part of a world that stands condemned. So what is this evidence? Well, the first is that God gives us up to impurity. Let's have a look at verse 24. What does he say? Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. 
And then what he does is he elaborates what he means by impurity and the dishonoring of their bodies in verse 26 and 27. He says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So just so we're clear here, Paul is talking about homosexual relationships here. And despite many creative attempts to offer an alternative interpretation over the last couple of decades, the plain reading of the passage remains far and away the most convincing. What does it say? Well, it says that heterosexual relations are referred to be natural. And homosexual relations are labelled contrary to nature. So what it says is to be consumed with passion for a member of the same sex. That's the dishonourable passion that Paul mentions in verse 26. And similarly, to engage in homosexual sex is to commit a shameless act in the eyes of God, verse 27. And then finally, to engage in such illicit sexual activity is actually a sign of God's wrath revealed against all mankind. It is the due penalty for our error. That's what the passage means. Now let's deal with just all the questions that that raises, okay? First question, isn't this just Paul's opinion? Got to be careful here. We need to remember that all scripture is God-breathed. This is 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17. Not just some of scripture is God-breathed. And to make doubly sure of this point, we can actually go to somewhere like 2 Peter chapter 3, where Peter affirms Paul's writings to be scripture. And so Paul is not just speaking for himself here or sharing his opinion. As he speaks, God speaks. And so if we start to separate the two and kind of make, you know, Paul and his writings over here and God and his writings over here, then what we're actually doing is we are sinfully asserting that our opinion and our judgment is higher and more accurate than the word of God that we have in the scriptures. So, second question, okay, if it's not just Paul's opinion, then surely Paul refers to nature, and when he does, isn't he just reflecting a cultural attitude that was natural at the time? Now, we have to be careful here as well. Uh, we always, just always be wary of any interpretation that dismisses something in Scripture based on a cultural context that no longer applies. There are a number of places in Scripture where people try to do this, uh, but the thing that we need to understand is that the Bible remains the Word of God. It is the Word of man as well. We believe in the dual authorship of Scripture. But what that means is that as we read the Bible, we will see culture um, shaping what's been written. It's obviously written by, in this case, somebody who has a Jewish background, and so we're going to expect Jewish characteristics. But just because it's culturally embedded doesn't mean that it's culturally relative. It doesn't mean that it's just up for grabs depending on what part of history we live in. Now, in addition to all of this, Paul uses the word nature, which in the Greek is phusis, and that is not a relative term. It refers to the moral reality that is embedded within the created order. And so what Paul is claiming here is a timeless truth, not some sort of culturally relative moral standard. So we lead to the third question then. Does this mean that gays and lesbians are worse sinners than everyone else, and that God is especially punishing them? And the answer is no. 
There is absolutely nothing in this passage that suggests a one-to-one correspondence of God's giving us up to impurity and individual sinners. Paul here is actually describing God's pouring out of his wrath over a collective humanity, not specifically and targeted at individual people. And from this, then, the fourth and final question I have for us naturally follows. Because if that's true, then why does Paul single out homosexuality as the manifestation of God's wrath in the world? And that is the right question. Why does he single it out? And the answer is in the connection that Paul draws between idolatry and sexual immorality. Have a look there again at verses 24 and 25. Now, like I said before, verses 24 25, they're talking about the same giving up as in verses 26 and 27. But in each of those two sections, Paul is emphasizing different things. In the first section, in verses 24 and 25, he is connecting our overturning of the created order, that exchange for creator and creation, with our overturning of our sexual relationships, that natural for the unnatural. And that's why Paul can say that God's giving us up to unnatural relations is the due penalty for our error. It's appropriate, it's fitting. Because just as we walk the created order and we overturn things and turn them upside down, God responds by warping our sexual relationships in exactly the same way. And so what happens is, as we completely reverse his created order, what God does is he responds in kind and completely reverses our sexual order. And so whilst all manner of sexual immorality and impurity is an outworking of God's wrath, the ultimate outworking of that judgment finds its particular expression in homosexuality. And it's for that reason that homosexual sin carries with it a weight that other sins don't carry. Now, I'm trying to be really careful here because what I don't want to say is homosexuality is the worst sin you can commit. Because it's not. What's the worst sin you can commit? Yeah, by sinning the Spirit. Rejecting Jesus Christ when He calls you to repent and believe. That is the heinous sin. Homosexuality is one of just many sins. And you see it in a whole list of, of vice lists in 1 Timothy 1... Um, In 1 Corinthians 6, it's just one of many. It's not raised to the top. Uh, But what I don't want to say um, is that therefore all sin is the same, because it isn't. All sin is of the same kind, because it's a suppression of God's truth, and so therefore all sin merits God's judgment. But not all sin is of the same degree. And the reason that homosexuality has a particular significance in the revelation of God's wrath is that it signifies to us What our sin is, it is the great reversal, the failure to glorify God as God, the moving of the creation and the reversal and putting the creation in the point where we obey and glorify. But that's just the first way that God gives us up. The second is that he gives us up to a debased mind, and we see this in verses 28 to 32. And just like the first, God's judgment is appropriately chosen. Have a look at the reason he gives in verse 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. He says, if you don't want to see sense, then so be it. I will make you senseless. And for what purpose? Well, the end of verse 28 tells us to do what ought not to be done. Essentially, what he's saying is that in forfeiting our knowledge of God, we untether ourselves from sound moral reasoning. 
Our moral compass, if you will, just, it, it doesn't point north anymore. And so the result is that instead of carefully navigating the ascent towards God, what we do is we rush helter-skelter down the slope away from God in ever-increasing unrighteousness. And we have no care or concern for the death that waits us at the bottom. So verse 32, we see that God's righteous degree for such reckless sin is death, and yet we do it anyway. And then to make matters worse, we go one step further and we applaud and cheer and approve of those who rush down the hill after us. The picture of humanity that God paints for us as he reveals his real, um, his wrath is actually overwhelmingly bleak. Have a look from verse 29. I just want you to, to, to this to just flow over you. Just get a sense of just the, the weight and the horror of this description. This is what humanity is as God reveals his wrath. They are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Quite a list, isn't it? And if nothing else, it should remind us that homosexuality is not just the only sin on display here. In fact, I think you would be hard-pressed to find a sin that isn't on that list. And you want to know what the scary thing is in all of this? This is what the human heart looks like when it's been untethered from and separated from the knowledge of God. We are not naturally good people definitely not what humanism would have us believe. Society is not on an upward trajectory. In fact, our world is spiralling into a descent into sin. You probably already know this fact, but humanity killed more people in the last century than it did in the 19th centuries before that combined. Hitler's Holocaust was not a blip on the radar. In fact, it's not even the latest in a long string of racial violence and evil on the global stage. As one famous theologian put it, the history of the world is the judgment of the world. And the point in all of this is not merely to condemn humanity's sin. The point in all of this is to help us to realise that as we look around the world and we see these things happening, that God is angry with us. He has given us up. And so we live in a world that stands condemned by the God that we have ignored and yet sees all and holds us all to account. God is angry with us. And that leads us finally to my sorry excuse for a third point. The refuge from God's wrath. God's anger means that we need a refuge. So our final point very quickly. It is meant to make you seek a refuge. And this is the beautiful thing, the beautiful mercy of our God. Because even in his active and just and fitting punishment for our sin, he lets his wrath act as a signpost for our desperate need, our need to escape his judgment. He tells us we need righteousness. And that's why the gospel saves us. And that's why the gospel is the only fitting refuge for the wrath of God because it grants us the righteousness that we so desperately need, the righteousness that we don't have. 
So Paul's point in this passage is quite simple. Without the context for the gospel, we won't understand the gospel. Without knowing the need, we won't buy the product, so to speak. So praise God that he makes his anger known. And he actually gives us the opportunity to repent and to claim his righteousness as our own. I'm going to pray. Father in heaven, as we look at the world and we see your anger, we are moved to repentance. <coughs> Forgive us for the times where we have suppressed the truth by our unrighteousness. Forgive us for the times where we have worshipped the creation instead of the creator. I pray that you will remind us of our deep need for you and that in repentance we will find joy because you give us the righteousness that we so sorely need. I pray that you'll move us in our hearts to cling to you and be thankful for your provision of salvation. And that's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can have announcements first because the like calling the bell. So if I can get John to come up and explain what's going to something exciting happening next week. After. Hi everyone, I'm Kayla. Um, myself and Akoya are going to start a prayer meeting. Um, so every week after the Bible talk, we're going to meet together and I think it will be a great time for fellowship um, and as children of God to come before him in prayer for this ministry um, and the other ministries around us. And also um, we are hoping to partner with an international um, uni Christian group to pray for them as well um, in a place where Christianity is not as well accepted as it is here. And I would love to see as many of you as possible join. It would be great. We can pray together, um, encourage one another, and be encouraged. Um, and most importantly, come before our Father God in prayer. Awesome. Um, and location is TBC? To be yes, All to right. be confirmed. But it will be this time period that's happening after this. And that's like, how long does that go for? It will go for like half an hour. It won't go for long. Um, we'll try and keep it as quick as possible because we know that this is uni. We have other commitments, um, but we think it's important to do. So please join us if you can. Yep, um, location will be posted yeah. on uh, mm -hmm. our page. Um, yes, and I think we've got to leave. Um, yeah, that's okay. We can talk about Mark Uncover next week. Yeah, okay. be all right. Um, just a reminder, if you aren't reading a Bible study, you must click oh, the yeah. arrow there. That's right. And another one, and another one. Cool. Those are our Bible study times if you're already in one. Um, good to know about if you've got friends that you want to invite along the Bible study as well, so not just for you. Um, until another class comes, I'm really happy to stay and answer questions. I'm really sorry that we didn't have as much time as I'd hoped, um, but I'm going to stick around. If you've got a class to run to, go for it. Um, if you need to contact me and you've got a question, please find me on Facebook. You'll be able to find mutual friends with some of these guys. Um, if I've said anything that has made you question things, upset you, confused you, I really want to partially care for you in that way. Um, so just flip me a message on Facebook or something. Otherwise, I'm just going to grab a seat and we can chat for those who want to stay.
Yeah.